Again, this is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? You look good. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I just want to say, if it's your first time, we're so glad that you made us a part of your week, and hopefully someone's grabbed you, kind of shared with you who we are and what we're trying to do uh, here at Providence. Uh, one of the things I always say is, is if you do not have a home church, we'd love for you to consider being a member here at Providence. One way to start that process would be just to make yourself known. Let us know you, you stopped by, and you can do that by uh, grabbing one of the Connect cards in your seat back in front of you, just kind of fill that out. Um, but this morning, we are continuing, like Jenna said, through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, as she read, I'm sure you guys thought, if you were here last week, I got another chipper sermon uh, text. <laughs> it's just really slated up for me here. You know, I'm really rethinking the sermon calendar at this point as I'm starting to go through the ones that, you know, has court next to it. So anyway, next time, a little more prep, and I'll send Corey up here, or Eric, somebody to do these. Um, but this morning, I get the, uh, the, the topic, divorce and oaths, I get to talk about. Um, and so we're going to be walking through that. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us, uh, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and I don't have enough time to kind of recap where we've been, but I would love to encourage you. Some of our resources are online, and you could just jump online, and you could check out some of our podcasts, and it can maybe hopefully catch you up. Uh, but what I want to do before I jump in is just pray for us, ask the Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do, and to open up the eyes of our hearts to the truth of God's word. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us. Lord, we confess to you that apart from your help, um, we would read your word and, and we'd be lost sometimes. We're grateful that your word speaks plainly, Lord, but the truth is that sin uh, has a way of, of, of darkening our, uh, our abilities to hear and to obey. And so, God, we just, we just ask for your help. And Holy Spirit, we not only ask that you'd help us with understanding, but we, we ask that you would help us with application, um, to know what it is that you are after um, through your word in our hearts, in this time, in this place, and in our specific circumstances, Lord. I pray you would speak to us both corporately as your body, but you would also speak to us individually um, in all the, all the unique situations that are represented in this room, God. I pray that you would speak uh, gently, but but honestly and truthfully to our hearts and that we would be shaped and molded and changed. And so we, we love you, Lord, and we entrust ourselves to you and we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So uh, before we get going, uh, one of my favorite uh, things to do, and, and you guys, if you've been here for any length of time, then you probably have caught this drift even as I preach, but um, I, I enjoy the stories of the Bible, I enjoy the narratives of the Bible in so much as they give me a compelling vision, not only for who God is and what his purposes are in the world, 
but also the Bible and the way that it's constructed in its narrative form, it gives me great confidence that this book is true. When we start from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you get these interconnected stories that seem like they could be disparate parts of a whole. Like they seem like if you read whether it be the story of Noah or the story of Abraham or the story of Joseph, you kind of cherry pick stories, uh, Gideon, you'd think these are all just uh, feel good stories that have morals to them. And, and the sad thing is that many times that's, what, that's the way they get preached. You know, like David, and he's going to kill Goliath, so we should be like David, and we should kill the Goliaths in our lives, or, you know, that's kind of how it gets preached. But the the story of the Bible is actually very interconnected. There's one grand narrative and grand story, which is God's covenant faithfulness to his people from start to finish, and that it's always aiming to the end. It's always aiming to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on this side, so we get to the the blessing of being on the other side of Christ's... uh, entry into the world, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, but also that we get to look forward to what Jesus will eventually do. And so when I talk about God's covenant faithfulness, I mean, from from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David, and if you're familiar with some of these stories, I think two years ago we went Bible in a year. Was it two years ago, Corey? We went Bible in a year, and we just kind of tried in, in 52 different sermons, how can we preach the mega themes of the Bible? It was pretty ambitious, and we probably missed a lot. Um, But nonetheless, we talk through some of these things. And what you see from Genesis to Revelation is God continuing to give a covenant to his people. And his covenant to his people is that he's going to do good to them. He is going to uh, bless them. He's going to multiply them. And then what you get from the people, whether it be the children of Israel uh, post-Abraham or whether it just be mankind with Noah and Adam, what you get is this group of people, that's you and me, that our reciprocity is just terrible. Like the story of us in the Bible is not, um, is not one of hero type uh, emulation. Like when we read David and the Goliath story, that's typifying Christ uh, in that story. Actually, if David is the Christ, then where do we stand? We stand as the rest of the children of Israel that's kind of cowering behind him and like not really interested in fighting, but we're like, you get him, David, you know, that's us. Um, and, and, the, and the Bible always kind of carries this forward where we have a God who keeps covenant and then we have us that continue to struggle with our faithfulness and reciprocity. Now, this idea of covenant actually starts in the book of Genesis, not just with Adam and his covenant with God, but also that when Adam and Eve are created, then God marries them. So like this idea of of marriage covenant starts in the book of Genesis. Like that wasn't just an idea that was kind of created by the church. It's not like one day we got together and say, how can we really, you know, do a good job of keeping people from, you know, having multiple different wives and, you know, just kind of going awry. I know what we'll do. We'll make them stick together for the rest of their lives. That was not a, a church idea. It was God's idea. God brought man and woman together, male and female, into covenant and a covenant relationship And this covenant relationship was meant to reflect, we get this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 32, it's meant to reflect God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So when we consider marriage, we have to consider it in the light of God's covenant faithfulness to a people in a place at a time, and that every single one of us who are married, that that's what our marriages are meant to reflect. Now, what I want to do is do a little bit of work there, talk a little bit about marriage, And then we'll kind of jump into the text because we have two different sides of the scripture. We have uh, marriage and then we have oaths, right? So we have uh, Jesus' words about marriage where he goes to the Ten Commandments again and he talks about, hey, you've heard it said don't commit adultery, but here's what I say to you. And he talks about uh, marriage. Then he goes on and talks about promises. So here's a few things that we know about the Bible and what the Bible says about marriage. So what is marriage about? Number one, and if you're taking notes, you could take these. If not, uh, that's okay too. 
uh, oneness. So marriage is about oneness. We know this because it says the two shall become one flesh. So there's supposed to be a union between male and female and that they would be uh, one. There'd be a unitedness. And this would then reflect the covenant relationship between our God and his people. We get this later when Jesus says to his people that just as I and the Father are one, you will be one with me. This, This idea of having union with Christ, if you ever thought about this, Ever having union with Christ is reflected in the marriage covenant with the union of husband and wife. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if we say that we are one with Jesus, wherever he is, there we will be, it's there that the very center of the gospel resides. So that when we one day we stand before God to be judged for our works, we are not judged on the basis of what we have done, but we're instead hidden in the ark like Noah ran to the ark. We are hidden in Christ, in union with him, and therefore when God looks at us, he sees perfect righteousness because we're in Christ. And the reflection is marriage, that there's a union between the two. You can't tell the difference between the two, right? Now, you can go on and kind of parse that out and start talking more about the Trinity, right? So Father, Son, Spirit, and how they're three but one. So like you and your wife aren't literally one, like you're not Siamese twins, you know? Like, like in being, you're, you're, not, you're not one, but right, you're, in essence, you are. And so we can kind of parse that out some more. But nonetheless, marriage is meant to reflect that oneness. Secondarily, it's complementary. So it's male and female that were conjoined together. That marriage was uniquely designed, that we would be equal in essence, but that we would be distinct in our purposes and roles, and that we would become one, but that we would not be exactly the same. And that, that was important. That man, it was not good for man to be alone because it wasn't complete. The very first thing that God said was not good was that man was by himself. So he brings Eve into the picture and they complete one another. Now there's a few more here that I think are important. What else does God do in marriage? Well, it's about being known. That the marriage covenant is about someone knowing everything that you are and everything that you aren't. That marriage is about this open vulnerability. This is why in the garden what you have is that Adam and Eve are both naked and, anybody got the next word? Unashamed, all right? Everybody's trying to get back there. At least every guy is trying to get back there, right? Naked and unashamed with his wife in a garden where everything's going well, okay? This is a knownness, a vulnerability that they had with one another that was perfect. So not only is marriage about being known, but marriage is about being accepted in that knownness. That when someone looks at you and sees everything that you are and everything that you are not in a sinful, fallen world, that then they accept you in relationship and there's closeness or there's a friendship that is deep in a marriage. And then lastly, not only you know, not only are you accepted, but you're loved. That in that marital relationship that you're cherished and you are protected and you're cared for and there's provision and that someone else in the world cares about your ultimate good at every and all cost. Are you guys checking out how this mirrors God's love for us? That we are known by him, that God knows you in a way that, that no one else knows you. I always try to, I always try to get us uh, to come back as we, as we walk into church. Sometimes we have this facade, we have this pretense, and we think that we can pretend and put on a face in church. And I just want to tell you, God already knows. So like, like he already knows you, he knows the best parts about you, he knows the worst parts about you. It's not like you have a hidden closet in your soul that God's like, man, I can't wait to get in there, and then I'm really gonna know. No, he already knows. And then in Christ, that we can all celebrate as we come and take the Lord's table because of what Jesus has done, that we are fully accepted in him. And not just accepted, like not a ceasefire, but also that we're loved as children of God. And that's what our marriages are meant to display. That's what our marriages are meant to reflect. And then lastly, and this is what Jesus is going to get out here, is that there's a promise that comes with that covenant. 
And that promise is, right, we stand up here, and what do we say? We hold hands, or I've done 20-something, I did 20-something weddings, I think, in like two years. There was a time where everybody was getting married, and everybody was like, hey, will you do our wedding? I'm like, sure. And it was just like a, a small part-time job for me. I did it everywhere. We drove all around the state of Texas. I did it all over the place. I've been international doing weddings. It's crazy. So every time, we would stand up here, and they'd hold hands, and go through the premarital and everything, and that's very fun. And then they make vows to each other. And at the very end, I always do the traditional vows. So I always tell people, you know, I'm okay with writing your own vows, but they're going to be a rendition of the traditional vows, and I'm always going to keep this in there. And it says this, till death do us part. That the promises and vows that we're going to make to one another are forever. We're going to make these vows before God and before others, and that that promise is going to be covenantal in its essence. And why is that? Well, because it's meant to reflect the covenantal vows of our God, that even whenever he made his covenant with Adam and sin filled the world, that he continued that covenant with Noah, even through a flood. And then even when he told Noah, I'll never flood the earth again, but then the the increased corruption with the Tower of Babel and all sorts of mess, he still keeps his covenant with Abraham. And then through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there's continual sin and people are, are leaving the covenant and running away from God and he still keeps his covenant with Moses. And then even when he gets the people out of Egypt and into the, into the promised land, they continue to follow false gods. And what does God do? He keeps his covenant with David. And then he continues to keep his covenant over and over and over again. Then he fulfills his covenant with Jesus. And this is our God. So when we talk about marriage, we talk about this promise that continues. Now, if you have read your Bible, and there's, there's a section of your Bible called the prophets, right? You get the major and the minor prophets. This is where most of us in our Bible reading plans, we get a little hung up. Anybody else? If you didn't get hung up in Leviticus, you're probably going to get hung up here, all right? You know, with the genealogies and like the grain offerings, if you, if you didn't get hung up there, I promise you, when you get to the prophets, you're going to be like, this is so intense. And, and, and the reason that it's so intense, you find these moments where God is calling people names, <laughs> like the whole children of Israel calls them names. I'm going to read a little bit of Hosea where he calls them pretty intense names. Um, but, but the reason that minor and major prophets are so intense is because the minor and major prophets, they serve as God's commentary in the midst of an unfaithful covenantal people. So have you ever read the narratives and you're like, why doesn't God step in and say anything about this? Like something totally ridiculous happens and you're like, God doesn't say a word. Well, let me tell you, he is saying something. He's saying it through his prophets. And that's why later on when you read Isaiah, God's actually speaking evidently to the king. It's just that the king is not, it's not recorded in the narrative. It's recorded in the prophets who God is speaking through. So there's one story in particular, one of the minor prophets uh, named Hosea. And I want to make this distinction here. When I say minor prophets, I hope you guys don't think like Hosea is a JV prophet. <laughs> like sometimes that happens. Hosea is like a JV prophet, but varsity is like Isaiah. Major and minor literally just is talking about the size of the book itself. Okay. It's not talking about, this guy was kind of like, you know, he didn't quite make the A team of the prophets. Like that doesn't work that way. You're either a prophet or you're not, right? You're a false prophet or you're a true prophet. That's it. And so Hosea gets this call from God. And in Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God tells Hosea, I want you to go and take a wife from whoredom. I want you to go marry this woman who will be a whore. This is his words. You got to look it up in your Bible. I promise I'm not calling you this. The Bible is. Um, it says, take a wife from whoredom. And I want you to marry her. And she's going to continually be unfaithful over and over again. So much so that Hosea has to, at one point, because his wife, whose name is Gomer, by the way, don't put that on your list of baby names, but his wife is going continually to different people's houses, different men's houses. At one point, she becomes a slave to a man because she owes him so much money. In her prostitution, she owes him money. And Hosea has to go and he buys his wife back in order to come back into his house 
And it's this continual unfaithfulness and unfaithfulness. And God says, Hosea, I want you to do this because this is, the, this is what it feels like to be me with the children of Israel. That they are constantly unfaithful. They are constantly in spiritual adultery. And I'm constantly buying them back. I'm constantly pursuing them. God tells Hosea this, and he has him live it out in front of the children of Israel, which is a tough story because he wants us to know, ultimately in our salvation, now perk up your ears for a second, what you contribute to your salvation is unfaithfulness and sin. That's it. What God contributes to our salvation is the miraculous goodness, righteousness, perfection, bloodshed, sacrifice, ascension, and welcome that only God can give. And so this, this idea of covenant faithfulness in the Bible points at us and calls us covenant breakers, but it points to God and says not only will he keep the covenant, but he'll keep the covenant over and over and over because he loves us. Now, why do I tell that story? Because where we're at in Matthew chapter number five is about Jesus challenging us to be covenant-keeping people. He's challenging this notion that we would not, that we would be covenant-keeping people only in the letter and not the spirit. We would be covenant-keeping people only if we could find loopholes to say that we're covenant-keeping people on the external, but that internally in our hearts, we're really just the same as we've always been. And Jesus loathes this idea. So let's start in verse number 31 of chapter 5. I'm going to read it once again. I know you guys are ready to hear it again. In red letters, Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, so here's what I'll tell you. Um, marriage is glorious. It is uh, amazing. And it brings so much joy. But I know that m many of us are married in the room. Here, let, me t let me be honest with you in church. Marriage is also difficult arduous, and at times can bring a ton of anxiety, tension, and heartache. Anybody else want to be honest with that? I know you're sitting next to your spouse. You're like, not me, not us, baby. <laughs> special, all right? The engaged folk are like, we'll never be this way. Don't listen to him. <laughs> all right? Listen, my wife's here. She's somewhere around here. She's leading today, so she's probably chasing our toddler around or maybe doing something else. But I'll just say, and she would amen me, there are times where what you love about me, my wife just doesn't really like about me. So like you guys are like, I love that he's so quick-witted and funny. Do you think that goes well in my house? <laughs> right? My wife's like, you know what I love about Court? I love the fact that he's a good arguer. No. Like every time he's, he's got a quick response back, it's why I married him. It doesn't work like that. Like there, there were times in the earliest stages of our marriage that the very things that actually make me seem very winsome and exciting to be around to people who don't know me at the depth of, of marriage level actually threaten to break the very fabric of my relationship with my wife. Because the things that seem great for like 30 minutes, think about it for 30 years. It's like, I, some of you are like, no dude, I don't even like hanging out with you for 30 minutes. Well, think about my wife. Think about how bad it is for her. Because here's the thing, as glorious as the picture that I gave you about marriage is, and it's true, there's another truth, and that is that we are fallen, broken sinners, and that we're trying to, to basically take two lives becoming one. I would say if Proverbs says iron sharpens iron, so one brother sharpens another, first of all, think about the violence of sharpening iron against each other, then think about fusing two metals together. <laughs> That's marriage, right? 
That's violent and difficult. And many times we bite back, not many times, every time your soul bites back against laying yourself down for the good of another when you feel like you're being trampled over. Because here's what I know about you without knowing you is that no one had to teach you to protect yourself and be self-exalting. You just were born that way. But Jesus has to come in and do a great work on the heart to make us selfless. He's got to do a supernatural work on the heart to make us love someone more than we love ourselves. Which is why when Paul encourages us men to love our wives as Christ loved the church, he says, listen, no one hates his own body but nourishes and cherishes it. That was his assumption. And I think it's a good one. Paul knew that you love yourself. And he said, listen, if, if, what, if what God said about marriage is true, that we're really one, then when you hate yourself, or when you hate your wife, you're really hating yourself. Marriage is difficult at times. And in this time, particularly, what you find in Jesus' time is the Pharisees are having interactions with the children of Israel about the law of Moses in relation to the Ten Commandments' call of adultery. Now, what you need to know about both Moses' time and Jesus' time that's different from our time is that women were not afforded the dignity and respect that they were entitled according to the Imago Dei, according to God's truth. And that for thousands of years, that was true. So in Moses' time and in Jesus' time, women were marginalized and mistreated in this culture. And so Jesus is aiming this at the men, and here's why. Because women had no right to divorce. It was only the man's decision. A man could put away his wife. You ever thought about that in the book of Matthew where it says Joseph was going to put away his wife privately? Like, there was no question that Mary could even consider putting away Joseph. That just wasn't a thing at the time. Joseph was going to put away his wife because she was pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit, and he thought potentially she cheated. And in this culture, that's the only way that it worked. So think about and put yourself, frame the law of God in the middle of a pagan culture coming out of Egypt, where sexuality is is rampant in the most unhealthy of ways. You gotta think Sodom and Gomorrah time. Okay, you gotta think that there is a lot of sexual promiscuity that is happening. And and really, the children of Israel will be the first ones who have a law around this kind of union of marriage. And God steps in, and in the midst of a culture that is basically just allowing men to have free reign over many different women, God says, no, you're gonna have one covenant spouse, and if you step outside of that, you will commit adultery. Now, having said that, what the Pharisees were talking with the children of Israel about in Jesus' time is that there's a law with Moses that, they, that a man could give a certificate of divorce to his wife. That if she was ritualistically unclean in some way, now it doesn't even talk about sexual morality because the, Bible had, the law had said if anyone is sexually immoral, they'd just be stoned. So you can handle that, right, in the law. This was talking about uncleanness. That if there were uncleanness, you could write a script of divorce, you could hand it to your wife, and then you freed her from ever having worry about committing adultery in the future, but you also freed yourself. Okay, And this was the provision that was set in the law that Jesus will later say that God put there because of the hardness of man's heart. Now, these men are basically in the time of Jesus and the Pharisees. These men are coming and they are basically divorcing their wife for anything they could come up with and they're just titling it uncleanness. We know this because in a, in a moment in the Gospels, there's a man who comes up to Jesus and says, is there any way that we can rightly divorce our wives? Now, could you think about that question in church? Think about in your home group, if, if a guy raises his hand, hey, is there any way we could righteously divorce our spouses, say? And his wife's sitting right next to him. How does that go, all right? Anything, uh, any um, advice you have on divorcing without uh, being under God's judgment, you know, Q&A time. 
Jesus attacks the hardness of his heart here and says the reason that Moses had given that permission is because of hardness of heart. But what happens here in the time of the Sermon on the Mount is these men are basically saying, I'm tired of my wife. I'm tired of living difficultly. In, in, in difficulty, I'm trying to trying to do this thing that God had set out as beautiful because it's hard. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to call her ritualistic, ritualistically unclean. I'm going to write a certificate of divorce. I'm going to give it to her, and I'm going to try over again. And if that doesn't work out, I'll do it again. And if that doesn't work out, I'll do it again. Because ultimately, I'm keeping the law, right? I'm just writing my script of divorce and calling it uncleanness for her. And so they were technically law keepers. And the Pharisees were like, listen, as long as you do the script of the law, it's okay. And Jesus hated this. Why would Jesus hate this so much? Well, remember what we said earlier about God's original intent of marriage and how it was meant to reflect his love? Let me tell you something. Does that reflect the covenant love of God? No. Of course not. And so what was originally intended from Israel, they had basically found a loophole around and said, hey, we can still be law keepers, be holy, and yet we can do whatever we really want in our own hearts. And you might be like, that's crazy. Why would they do that? Friends, that's what happens all the time. We are living in that culture. I hope you see that. Like there's a literal thing called uh, starter marriages. That's a thing. You can look up articles, starter marriages. It's where you don't even know if you're really ready to be married. So what you'll do is you'll find another person who doesn't know if they're ready. And you all just try it out. And then in 18 months, you'll split and maybe try the real thing. It's a thing. And so when we see, I hope we don't see this through religious lenses. Be like, what pagans they were. No friends, what pagans we are. Right? Because this is where our hearts are bent. The Pharisees had signed off on the children of Israel, tossing aside the covenant for any reason they could come up with, and then titling it uncleanness. And they had taken God's most precious covenant, the most uniquely reflective covenant, and they had basically become a formality and said, well, just make sure you write a script of divorce. Jesus says, no. Now, then he goes into another diatribe. Now, I think these are connected, and I think that most commentators agree. You might think that Jesus is just kind of going into disparate conversation, but remember, these layer upon each other. What does he go into next? Then he starts talking about promises we make. Now, why are those connected? Because the two most basic and fundamental promises that we make are promises to our God and promises to our spouse, right? And yet we make promises all the time, every day, right? If you have children, you probably have heard your kids and they've heard it from somewhere, so maybe they heard it from us, but they might be on the playground and be like, you know, I tagged you, you are it. You're like, I'm not it, you didn't tag me. I tagged you, I swear to God. You ever heard of that? And then their mom comes in, I will wash your mouth out with soap, you know, whatever it may be. Um, but you know what I'm saying, right? The, the, this idea of promising. I, I know, I promise, it's true, and we swear to things. This happened also in uh, Jesus' time, and Jesus says, starting in verse 33, again, you've heard it said to those of old that you shall not swear falsely, but you should perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Let anything you say or what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Now, before you guys go right now and you, you know, sell your house, sell your car, quit your job, because all those were commitments you made, all right, let's, let's talk about what is Jesus after here, right? What is Jesus saying when he challenges us in the way that we make oaths? Okay, a couple things. First, I think Jesus here is saying, why do we feel the need to swear by all sorts of different places, people, or things as if that's going to bring us credibility 
Is it possible that we lack credibility because we're so dishonest and therefore we feel the need to grasp those things? Or another, or another way to say it is, I've heard, I heard one uh, pastor say it like this. If someone tells you that they have to, you know, I swear by my mother's eyes that this is true. If that's true, you most likely don't believe the guy. If he has to say that. Because if he has to swear by his mom's eyeballs, it might be that the guy's sketchy, right? Or let me put it another way. If this person feels like they constantly have to add on credibility by swearing by things, it's possible that you don't trust them for a reason. And maybe it's you don't trust them because of your own issues, but by and large, maybe it's that they're not trustworthy and they gotta tack on other things. Jesus says that the people who are his covenant people should be so faithful in their covenant keeping to the main covenants that when they say yes or no, people take it as gospel because they see their life. See, look at this guy's life. I know when he says yes, it means yes. When he says no, it means no. He doesn't have to swear by his grandmammy's grave, right? Okay, that's one. Number two, Jesus says this, and I think this is so important. When we make those kind of promises, what we think is that we're swearing by things that aren't God, and therefore it's okay. It's like, why does your mom want to wash your mouth out with soap? Because your mom knows the Ten Commandments about taking the Lord's name in vain, and therefore when you swear to God, she's like, hold your tongue, Right? And that's why that happens. So what we do is we swear by a bunch of other things that are, we see as lesser things. And Jesus says this, don't you know, the way he says it is, why are you swearing by Jerusalem? Who owns Jerusalem? It's a city of a great king, <laughs> not David, me. You're swearing by me. Why do you swear by the throne of God? What is God's throne? His. What is his footstool? His. You're swearing by God alone. He's basically saying that everything kicks back up to God anyway, so why do you think by swearing on all these other things that really it kind of lessens the blow in case you lied? Rather than knowing that when you swear by anything, ultimately it kicks back up to being swearing to God. And Jesus challenges us there. And then he says something that I think is so uh, challenging but really difficult to hear. He says, you can't even control your own hair color. Why are you making such confident assertions? Now, that was true then, and I know some of you are like, ha-ha, I can. <laughs> all right? <laughs> uh, beg to differ there, Jesus. All right, I know, I got you, all right? Here's what I think, Jesus, the point that he's making, is that there's not one of us sitting here that couldn't have our entire life changed on the drive home totally outside of our control. And that's tough, isn't it? Can we agree, like, we don't, we don't like to grapple with that? Like, we all know it's true, but even when I say it, there's a tension in our chest. We're like, move on. And Jesus aims there with our oaths. He says, why do you think that you are in such control that you can make confident assertions about your future when you don't even control what happens next breath? And all of us, we're rolling through in our head situations and time that that's happened to us. Am I right? I mean, I know I am. When I was even preparing for the sermon, I'm thinking through the times where there are many things in my life that are completely outside of my control and it changed the very trajectory of my life. And Jesus challenges us there. So there's a frailty to human life that we don't like to grapple with. And instead, in our promises, we like to prop ourselves up as though we're in control. The book of James later on would say, that we like to say, if, you know, tomorrow I'm gonna go to this place, tomorrow I'm gonna go to this place, but in reality, we should say, if God wills, I'll be alive tomorrow to do any of those things. 
Now, is James or Jesus here saying that we shouldn't make plans or we shouldn't make promises? No, I think what they're saying is that we should make both of those in light of God's authority as our king. That we should actually be more considerate of the promises that we make and less flippant about the promises that we make. And then the promises that we do make that are deep and meaningful, we should look to keep with all vigilance. Why? Well, I'll say this. I think the reason, biblically, and I say I think is a euphemism. Here's what I, I know. What the Bible says is that we flourish when we root ourselves in our covenant commitments. So let's walk in this for a second. Why is Jesus so passionate about our covenants here? Let's start with our covenant with God. You were made for God. Augustine said we were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. If you were made for God, there is no place that you will flourish more than in faithful united covenant with him for the rest of your life. And Jesus, knowing this, points back to our covenant with God and says, if we lean into this relationship with all of our might, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, how do I do that, Cord? Is it through obedience? It's through repentance and faith because you know about your disobedience. But it's through continual, long-term, active repentance and faith coming back to Jesus in the cross, that if we lean into that, the person that God originally intended for us to be will flourish. Now, I know some of you are saying, Court, I've been following Jesus, but it seems like things are really difficult. It's hard. My marriage is not where I want it to be. It's, I'm, t- I'm doing the things you tell me to do, but it's actually not flourishing. I want to tell you, this is, on a, this is a long-term process of sanctification. That yes, there are things that are immediately true when we trust Jesus, that we will be with him forever, that he has forgiven us of our sin, that the penalty of sin is no longer on our shoulders. But let me tell you, friends, that the power of sin clings very closely and longs to have dominion over your heart. And therefore, as we lean into the Savior over and over and over again, our lives begin to be shaped and changed. And it's in that covenant that we flourish. Now, the antithesis of that is when we jump from covenant to covenant, becoming spiritual adulterers. And the fruit of that ends up bearing out to be bankrupt dryness. And so Jesus says, why don't we consider the covenant that we have and keep it? Okay. Then we lean to the covenant of marriage. Now, I know not all of us are married, and I hope that you can glean from this if you're not, but... The covenant of marriage, uh, this is what we do in our premarital at the very beginning. What if God made marriage not to make you happy, but to make you holy? Think about that for a second. That's the very first thing we talk, yeah, real, real chipper, right? That's the very first thing we talk to couples about. They're like real excited they come in. First quote, marriage is about holiness, not always happiness. You will be happy at times in your marriage, but it'll ebb and flow like the stock market, baby. All right? There will be depressions and recessions. But if you're in Christ, holiness is a trajectory that you're on. And Jesus is faithful to make us like him. Well, how does that happen? When we root ourselves into this kind of covenantal love, learning to love another person for a long time, faithfully, consistently, perseverance, care, begins to shape and form us into the image and likeness of Jesus, who is the perfect groom who has loved his bride perfectly. And so that means that over time, God patiently and lovingly, by the power of the Spirit, begins to root out a lot of that selfishness I was talking about that didn't need to be taught to you. 
Like over time, you begin to do things. Husbands, like jump in and wash the dishes after dinner. When your first year of marriage, you just went to bed because you thought someone else who was hired to do that is the one who did it. And then you realize that hired person was your mom. And now you basically have let your wife do that for the last 365 days. And you're like, oh, I might need to do this. Or maybe, husbands, you actually pick up the towel from the floor after year one because you realize it doesn't actually get picked up unless someone does this. Wife, slowly but surely, you start to be an encourager of your husband. Because the man that you so idolized in your father and you saw him as your hero, he was that way because he had someone who was speaking life into him, whether that be your mom or whether it be someone else was actually encouraging who he was. But over time, you, start, you stop criticizing your husband so much because, listen, hear me on this, wives, you're probably right. And you probably don't even know the half of how bad he is. But what he needs most of all is you to speak life and truth into him and who Christ has made him to be, not just privately but publicly about him. And that starts to happen. And it's in the fertile ground of this covenant that we begin to become more and more as we were created to be. And so Jesus here says, why don't you lean back into the covenant? Because why? Because our world is constantly saying, you need to bail on this. Push the eject button on this. This is not freeing. This is very taxing. You're in slavery in this relationship. She doesn't love you like this one loves you. He doesn't give you the attention that this one gives you the attention of. And basically continues to play these cards of disunity in the hopes that you, in a moment of weakness, would push the eject button on the very thing that God has designed to bring life. And Jesus says, don't do this. Cherish this covenant because it's in this covenant that you will flourish. And then lastly, I want to make mention of this because I think that the Bible does too, is here at Providence what we do is we do covenant membership. And the reason that we do that is because there's a horizontal covenant that we make with God that really I wanna, and I'm gonna make this point later, but that Jesus keeps with us, <laughs> okay? That's this. And then we have our, our marriages, but then there's a horizontal covenant we make with each other, the people of God. If you're in this room and you're not a member of Providence Community Church, I wanna say I love you, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm, e I'm eager to be here uh, with you this morning, but here's what I'll say, I'm not your pastor, and I love you. I mean, I'm a, you know, if you're a Christian, I'm a brother in Christ, and, and I'm preaching the word right now, and obviously you're willing to hear that, but I'm not your pastor, and here's why. Because covenant membership is about us agreeing with one another that I will play a role and you will play a role. We'll be brothers and sisters, but ultimately I'm gonna, I'm gonna play a role in shepherding your soul. And that's important for me because Hebrews 13 says that I'm gonna give an account for the souls of those who are under my care. And you know what terrifies me? If that means that everybody I preach to is the one who I have to be worried about. That scares the mess out of me. I'm uninterested. I'm trying to shrink that number, okay? I need to know that I know that I know who it is that I'm responsible for praying for, caring for, loving on, or at least hopefully as an elder, as an elder team, creating systems of care that we can be faithful in that. But here's what we know about the church if we read the New Testament. It's that God says it's in that covenant community that we will be spurred on into the likeness of Jesus. Because the same things that I just said about marriage, they become true in the covenant community when you begin to belong to a people. 
And you belong to them in such a way that even when they make you mad, you're not just going to bail on them and go, you know, go through the ecclesiological buffet and figure out, well, I like worship music here, and I like their home group system here, and I love that my kids get sent off to the third heaven in this children's ministry, and they come back, and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we were in space, mom, at church today, isn't that cool? They're like, awesome. You, know, you instead say, I'm going to commit to a group of people because it's more about becoming like Jesus than it is about my ultimate entertainment and comforts. And it's in there that the Lord begins to graciously and slowly do work on our hearts. Sometimes people say, man, I'm, I'm going to leave home group because it's just been difficult and you know, I'm, I'm having problems with some of the people in there. And I would say, whoa, it's just getting started. You mean you're having problems for the first time? Oh, good. Then that means actual work is being done in the heart. If you're like, home group's great, never have any problems with anyone. I'm like, okay, so it hasn't gotten beyond the casual yet. Good. Hopefully, there's going to be a moment where inevitably the two sinners, three sinners, four sinners, 12, 20, however many kids are in there, they start to get to you. And it's in that moment that the, the great refiner steps in and says, okay, I'm going to do some work here. Shaping us into the image of Jesus. And so this morning I want to encourage you if, you, if you, if you have not trusted Christ yet, that covenant that I was talking about with God, I want to tell you this, that yes, there is an importance for you to say yes to, to Jesus, but let me tell you, you're saying yes to what Jesus has already done, not yes to what you're going to do from now on. This covenant with Christ is totally and utterly reliant upon who God is. And let me tell you something, friends, it is solid. Who God is, what Jesus has done for us, is an anchor to every human soul because this covenant is on the basis of God's faithfulness and not ours. So I want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you would trust him with your whole self, your whole life. Secondarily, if you are not already involved in a home group, I want to encourage you, get lean into covenant community this morning. Lean into covenant community this morning. Find a way that you can get plugged in with some people because here's what I can promise you. It's not gonna be perfect. It's gonna be messy. There's gonna be odd, awkward moments as you step in and you don't know anybody and then you're worried about them getting around your kids and then they start hugging your kid and you're like, I don't even wanna hug you and all that things are gonna be true. But here's what I can promise you is God has, has always been faithful to what he promises. And what he promises is that in that context is where we're shaped and formed. And it might take some time but it always happens. And then lastly, I, I wanna encourage you, be honest about your marriage this morning. Like I know we made some jokes, but, but if, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't walk out of here this morning and say, oh yeah, that was good and I'm gonna recommit. I'm gonna be stronger in my relationship. No, 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 no. I want you to be honest with your spouse and say, hey, I don't feel connected. Now, maybe you should do that in the car, not in the foyer, because I don't want an explosion, okay? We don't need coffee on your face, on the floor, we got children, but have that conversation. Periodically, we do programs called STEP. STEPS is an amazing program that we walk through gospel-centered recovery and redemption for the heart. That's probably gonna happen this year at some point, probably the fall. We also have gospel-centered counselors that we refer people out to. If your marriage needs counseling, listen to me. Every marriage should consider it. It is not just, you know, uh, when everything's on fire, then you call the fire department. It's like when you smell smoke, maybe you should call them. Preserve some belongings, Right? We'd love to refer you out to some of them. And then lastly, but definitely not least, maybe just sharing it with your home group leader so they can pray with you. Say, hey, and, and here's what I promise about our home group leaders. They'll probably come alongside you and say, I'm so glad you shared it. Us too, let's pray together. Or if they're in a better place, say, hey, we've been there before. Or if they haven't been there before, they could say, listen, we are 
constantly and cautiously optimistic about the fact that there are always ditches on both sides of the road and we don't know where they're gonna be, but I promise you that we'll pull you out of this one if later on you'll pull us out of ours. That's at least how we look to shepherd. But Christ calls us to be covenant keepers and he calls us to do that from the strength of his covenant keeping power of the gospel. We can't do this by ourselves. And so this morning, if you're thinking, Court, I love that, it sounds good, but bottom line is in my marriage or in my life, in my relationship with church, that's not only improbable, it's impossible. I wanna tell you, God is always in the business of doing the impossible for his glory. So I wanna encourage you in that. And we have testimonies of marriages where that has been true. We have testimonies of people who hated the church and now they're members of our church faithfully serving. Like we got testimonies and I wish that, you know, we could have them share it with you. But if you get involved in a home group, maybe you can hear some. But if you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. I'm out of time. God, here's my, um, here's my prayer. I, I just, I know myself. I know my tendency to gloss over at times. And so I, I just pray not only for myself, but for my brothers, my sisters in the room, that we wouldn't just gloss over wherever you're looking to shape us to form us. And that, my God, that you would do a great work to not turn the screws on us, but to shape and form us, to lovingly lead us like the shepherd that you are. Whether it be marriages, whether it be hurt, pain, sadness, depression, discouragement, spiritual abuse that's been experienced, physical abuse that's been experienced. God, many things we didn't cover. I just pray for your healing hand. And God, as we come and take of the Lord's Supper, I just ask that uh, there'd be healing in that moment too. As we think of our own wounds, Lord, we would, we would look back and we would reckon back to your scars on your hands for us. When we think of our own tears, we would think of your blood that was shed to wipe them away eventually. And that, Lord, we'd lean into your loving and kind and gentle hand. Bless us, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.